Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now some people say we have to love ourselves in order to show love for others. Have to love self to love others. That may be true, but it's not my experience. My experience has been that loving others and showing that love in our actions inspires us to love ourselves. By performing a loving or neighborly act, taking a casserole to somebody who's ill, helping an elderly person do yard work, simply bringing in that great big trash can for an elderly neighbor after the big truck has come by, is a loving and compassionate act, a favor to show respect and care for a neighbor. The effect on us is that we know we've done a good thing. Not anything big or especially to be proud of, but that simple act makes it easier for us to acknowledge the better part of ourselves, that that better part does exist because we have demonstrated it. Our caring actions make it easier for us to love ourselves. The paradox is that you may not enjoy your neighbor's company or agree with their politics. You may not even admire your neighbors for whatever reason. That can be an unhealthy and stressful feeling. When we don't like somebody or don't feel friendly or affectionately toward them, the unpleasant feelings generate harmful amounts of hydrochloric acid in our gastrointestinal systems, our stomachs in particular. Now, we need that hydrochloric acid to digest our food, but too much of it can become uncomfortable and irritating and can even produce ulcers and run up the Tums and Rolaid bills. There's evidence that the routinely accepted cause and effect relationship between love of self and love of others can be backwards, or at least that it can work both ways. Now I wonder if Jesus knew what a wondrous result, what an almost mystical reaction he would inspire. What powerful efforts would transpire from this simple second commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus' pronouncement also reinforces the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We've heard this all our lives. Whether we believe in a supernatural God who judges the way we live our lives, whether or not we believe in an all-knowing God that condemns us to heaven or hell, depending on our actions and our faith and acceptance of Jesus as his son. I wonder why it is we, we as individuals and we as corporate entities and as governments, why we don't remember this more often? 
Why in our daily lives do we find ourselves consumed by the need to achieve, to make money, to concentrate on trying to make our lives enjoyable with things, toys, gadgets, cars, pretty houses, boats, fancy vacations, weeks and weekends at resorts, sometimes at the expense of taking time to love our neighbors, to volunteer, to serve in the community, or to represent our congregation in civic and community life. As someone who went back to graduate school in late midlife, I understand the pressures and the needs to achieve economic and financial self-sufficiency. And that self-sufficiency is basic to good citizenship, to work and earn enough if we're able so that we do not become financial burdens on others. Goodness knows I enjoy beautiful things, driving a nice car and a comfortable life. Oddly enough, persons with smaller incomes give a larger proportion of their incomes to churches and charity than people with the largest incomes. How much to give to show our neighborliness and our love for our neighbors by sharing is something we all consider seriously. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? This is an important message for us these days when we are threatened by terrorists and a growing Islamic fundamentalism that is hell-bent on destruction of our country and our values. It becomes very simple and easy for us to classify all Middle Easterners as Islamic fundamentalists even when we know that that is not accurate or true. For one thing, Many of us are unfamiliar with the Muslim world, with Islamic culture and religion, and we don't know enough to be able to distinguish between people who look like Arabs and people who might be terrorists. The Transportation Security Agency, or Safety Administration, whatever it's called, has plenty of problems itself, even with identification and luggage imaging and baggage searches. I was pleased a few months ago when one of our former members, now he lives in Carthage, Mr. Hamadi sent me a newspaper article that featured the charity work being done by Muslims in his community. We come back to the fundamental question, who is my neighbor? Or, as the similar question was asked in the Old Testament, am I my brother's keeper? In the Hebrew scriptures, Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, was a farmer. His brother Abel was a shepherd. Cain was enraged when God preferred Abel's sacrifice of sheep to his own offering of grain. And so Cain murdered Abel. And when God asked where Abel was, Cain pretended ignorance and said, 
Am I my brother's keeper? God punished Cain by sending him into exile. The clear message here is that in both the Jewish and in the Christian traditions, in the eyes of God, we are expected to care for and protect one another. We do this reasonably well within close families and in healthy, well-functioning communities. But sometimes when a call comes to help someone we barely know, or when our estimation is undeserving, for one reason or another, our generosity can break down. Now, I'm not one to say that we should rescue everyone, but that we do have a responsibility to take steps to help people become self-sufficient so that they can also function as good neighbors and good citizens. Does this mean that we have to like everybody? Or love everyone? Or spend a lot of time with people we don't care for? I don't think so. But we are called to respect those who for one reason or another are unable to help themselves. We're called to help them help themselves. Sometimes that's a difficult challenge to figure out how to do it. So we rely on the United Way or Providence House, organizations that are vetted for responsibility and reliability. Are there other foundations or biblical references to loving our neighbor? If we try to follow the teachings in the Bible, where do we turn? Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, a well-known controversy in the New Testament provides us with choices. As Unitarians, we like choices. But choices can confuse us sometimes. Now, you just take the controversy of faith versus works. If we tried to select one of the most important teachings of the Christian faith, the choice of the doctrine of justification by faith might not be far off the mark. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not works, lest any man should boast. That comes from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The scriptural foundation pertaining to justification is that God has provided a single way for mankind to be forgiven the sin that separates humans from God. That way is through faith in God through Jesus Christ. In other words, no type of work or action can overcome this separation of God from humans. Only faith. Then James comes along and says in James 2, 24 and 26, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so faith without works is dead. So there we have a contradiction in scripture that confounds us and confuses us. If we strive for forgiveness of sin to become one with God, do we achieve that through faith or by our good works? By caring for one another, by keeping one another safe and well, by loving our neighbors? It's a dilemma that can keep stadiums full of pastors arguing for weeks and months on end. But in my view, 
that's not so much a problem as it is a challenge to us as rational human beings. The scriptures were written at different times by different people who were trying to convey what they best understood the God of their times to be telling them. What they best understood that God required in order to live good, moral lives as God intended. Now we, many years later, are free to interpret those scriptures in the directions our own intelligence and logic leads us. I don't look at those contradictions as irreconcilable conflicts, but as inspirations for consideration. Conversations among reasonable people who are interested in creating meaningful lives for themselves. We question, we interpret, we rethink, we reinterpret. And in the process, which never, ever ends, we create new meaning for ourselves. We engage in meaning-making every day. That's the wonder, and that's the glory of the process of truth-seeking and building a life we can be proud of. We have choices. We have the ability to reason and to discuss and create dialogues with others who are concerned about the meaning of life. I don't imagine for a minute that I, or probably any of all of us here, will ever find the ultimate truth but I do know that the process, the journey, and the meanings we create while we're trying to figure it out energizes our hearts and minds. Adlai Stevenson said, if we value the pursuit of knowledge, we must be free to follow wherever that search may lead us. The free mind is not a barking dog to be tethered on a ten-foot chain. We're free to choose. And without recommending faith over works or works over faith, we're free to consider whether and how to love our neighbors. I moved into a neighborhood of strangers when I came here, and my neighbors helped me to move furniture, gave me flowers, plants, all kinds of cake and cookies, and offered to look after my cat. And when I moved into my apartment in Washington, D.C. many years ago, I found a bottle of wine, a loaf of bread, and some salt outside my front door, a traditional Jewish welcome gesture. These small gifts to a stranger began new friendships, helping relationships, and many conversations over the fence and across the street. I don't know much about their theologies except for the Jewish friend, but I felt loved by them as a new neighbor. And those friendly acts inspire me to pass it on. I don't know who gains more pleasure, the giver or the receiver. But a great prophet once said, it is better to give than to receive. I like that. Whether it's a gift of help, a gift of food, or some other thing, 
It's a gift of love from one neighbor to another. And though the gift itself may not remain, the memory and the love will. <laughs>